Welcome back to the podcast, perhaps soon to be named. And uh, today <clears throat> you're going to hear an interview I just did with uh, Dr. Janine Brown. She's a professor at Bethel Seminary. She's uh, a New Testament scholar. She's written a number of books, a couple on integration, three commentaries on Matthew. She just finished a commentary on Philippians, writing one on uh, First Peter. She's writing another book on uh, Jesus in movies. Uh, this is the book. This is a Baker academic book, so not a popular book, more of a seminary uh, textbook called Scripture's Communication, Introducing Biblical Hermeneutics. So hermeneutics, what we used to call teaching Herman new tricks. Uh, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. How do we study uh, literature? How do we interpret it? Why do we interpret it? Why do we have to interpret it? Why can't we just read the Bible? How do we read the Bible more effectively? How do we understand the meaning of the text more accurately? Those are the kinds of things that, uh, that Dr. Brown writes about in this book. So half of it is um, sort of theory, communication theory, speech act theory, literary theory. Uh, the second half of the book, a little bit more than the second half, is more practical. How do you understand genre? How do you understand words? How do you get the historical context? How do you do Bible study? So that's the discussion that we had. We want to be better students of the Bible, uh, more effective in our interpretation of the Bible. So uh, listen in. I hope you will enjoy the, uh, the discussion that I had with Dr. Janine Brown, professor at New Testament at Bethel Theological Seminary. Dr. Brown, thank you so much, and welcome to uh, the podcast. How are things at Bethel? Good. We are moving into our reading and research week, so we have kind of a break for a week in our rhythm of seven weeks, a week to do extra work or have a little extra time. So it's a nice time to break from the rhythm of the semester. Nice time to be a professor and not a student, not cramming for uh, the fact that the you're next thing. Gone. Yeah. Yes, there you what, go, catching what up. What are you teaching this semester? Um, I teach a New Testament, so I'm teaching a New Testament explorations. It's kind of a deep dive into three New Testament books, Matthew, Romans, and First Peter. Uh, it it complements our survey class they've already had. Okay. And I have a hermeneutics class, which will be our topic, I believe, today. And then right. I have a senior integrative seminar. We try to bring the three pillars of the curriculum together, formation, leadership, biblical theological studies, and really understand how those things weave together wonderfully at the end of our seminary journey. Okay. Well, by the way, I saw, I was, uh, I've had your book for a few weeks and have been working my way through it. And I mm -hmm. glanced this morning back at the uh, acknowledgements or something. And I saw that you'd been at the Tyndale house in Cambridge and uh that is, I, I have, uh, it's a lovely place. Somewhat, That's where I did the bulk of the work for the first edition. Lovely place. Lovely place. I think I get in there illegally because, uh, I do not have a PhD. And so I've had to, um, I've had to implore friends to vouch for me to get me oh. in there. I promise wow. that I will not be disruptive, but such a wonderful library. And then just the community is wonderful as well. It is great. Although I I noted because I've I've been there twice on sabbaticals and and I mm -hmm. have friends that say so. 
you get three months to go do whatever you want and you're going to a library <laughs> but it's in cambridge right england i mean that that the setting is everything yeah i i give up if they like don't like writing it around like fun, the more yeah. i explain i go yeah, yeah i rent a desk and you know it's in the, <laughs> There's a bunch of other people that are working on these things and you have tea and you get to talk about it and it's all very British and they're like, oh my goodness. Well, anyway. It is, sounds fun to me, but I understand why that doesn't appeal to everybody. So uh, I, for those listening in, this is the book, uh, Scripture as Communication. Uh, this is uh, a book that Dr. Brown wrote in 2007. And then it recently was uh, reissued a uh, second edition. And it is, um, so... The first thing I'm going to ask you, I guess, is uh, since it's on hermeneutics, that's the subtitle, an introduction to biblical hermeneutics. Uh, the book is sort of, I, I'll just, before I forget, it's it's got a, it's got a theoretical set. Uh, the first half, it's a communication theory and all of that kind of stuff. And then it becomes a little bit more practical. This is an mm -hmm. academic book, Baker uh, Academic. And so it's, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, pull you down from the high ivory towers to uh, the sort of the street level uh, for those doing personal Bible study mm -hmm. or those who are preparing to lead small group studies and other things. Uh, but let's let's uh, start by what exactly is hermeneutics? Great. And I, I can walk those steps from ivory, ivory tower down the street. Okay. Still able to walk steps. So that works for me. Um, hermeneutics is, in short, the study of the study of the Bible. So I like to do it this way. So I'm reading the Bible. This is what we do when we do Bible study, when we do Bible reading, our devotions. We're reading the Bible. And hermeneutics is taking a step back to say, what is going on when I do this task? What's going on? What are my assumptions about what I'm doing? What are my assumptions about what I'm reading? Um, who else does this thing differently? And how do they do it differently and what informs that? So hermeneutics is that sort of theoretical look, kind of a reflective second order task of looking at what I'm doing when I'm studying the Bible. And I think both of those are important. So in other words, studying the Bible is really important. The task itself. So just studying the Bible, no fancy terms, it really important. Hermeneutics is saying, well, let's take a look at that act of reading and interpretation. And I find that a fascinating topic as well. If people aren't as fascinated with that topic, they can skip the first six chapters, as you noted in my book, and move into, so what's important to think about for doing this task well? And, yeah, so and there, that's, go ahead. We're, this podcast, this topic, I, I reached out to you because we're in a series right now called mm -hmm. How Do I Know? And, and I've been saying to people, uh, you have to figure out how, how do I know what I know? And occasionally you have to think about your own thinking and step back yep. and sort of say, wow, why am I, why do I think this way? Or why do I assume this? Or what am I assuming? Uh, what, mm -hmm. what is it that I just have absorbed as part of my culture or from my family or my default assumptions that I need to actually look at? Yeah. So some people love this and other people are like, Oh, my goodness. So the people that say, oh, you get to go to Cambridge and sit in uh, the, the Tyndale uh, house for, for a couple of weeks. How do I get that job? Those people it, generally enjoy thinking about thinking and, and that whole mm -hmm. epistemological discussion. Others are like, 
you know, this is not where I live and I need a little bit of help here with uh, life in a broken world. And you academics, you eggheads, you geeks, you just head down this path and you want to, why, why would we even interpret the Bible? You, you, you head down these paths, you make this harder than it needs to be. Just go with what the Bible says. So what do you say to people who say, we shouldn't be interpreting the Bible. That's a whole level of complication mm. that you people voiced on it. When you're going to go, generally, they would say, when you're going to go left, you're going to be liberal. You're going to say that it doesn't mean what it clearly means. So how do you deal with the argument mm. that we shouldn't be interpreting the Bible? We should just read it and get the plain meaning. Um, two things I'd say, uh, and it's a really good question. Um, so I want to affirm the question. Uh, and I'm not interested in making everything in life esoteric. That's not who I am and how I live. Um, but I am interested in that reflective step, like you said, thinking about what has put me in this place where I read it this way. Because plain meaning is one thing in our cultural context with a certain even subgroup potentially or a church congregation. And that plain meaning may not make any sense in the language of plain meaning to somebody who's reading the text in India or in Russia or in China or in France. So we need to be aware that that plain meaning is in the eye of the beholder in many ways. Um, I think the other thing to realize is that when we're doing any kind of reading or listening in our own context, we are interpreting. We think we're just listening or we're just reading, but really if I pick up a book um, other than the Bible, um, I'm deciding what, what is it I'm reading? Like I, I love Jane Austen. So I'll just say I, uh, my husband and I bonded over our love for Jane Austen. How is that possible that this wonderful man also liked Jane Austen? Um, so when I pick up one of her novels, I'm a novel, I'm reading it as a story, but not a story that happened, not a historical novel. I know it's a novel that's fiction that sets me in the right direction. But if I read it as a historical, uh, historical account, I will read it wrongly. I think we might all agree that that's the case, but it'd be like, well, that's obvious. Yes, in our own cultural context, knowing what we're reading, reading for the whole, understanding the historical context that that is set in, even for Jane Austen, you know, not this century, but a couple centuries ago, those things we we kind of know how to do. We do we intuit it, but we're interpreting. That's all. It, those are all interpretive moves. Right. So interpretation is it's not this highfalutin thing. Interpretation is what we do every single day of our life, and I love the study of hermeneutics or the study of interpretation, it helps me understand that I'm always an interpreter. I'm always interpreting life and God and, and other people and situations and texts that I read. Um, and I love the idea of thinking about that whole interpretive, we are interpretive beings. We interpret. And so there's nothing to be concerned about with that it's like this is what god has wired us to be not infinite but finite and to be interpreters so let's work with that so by the way um i i was reminded i i assume you are familiar with um adler's book uh, how to read a book yes i haven't read it for a long time but it is an interesting yes right. wonderful how how just how should we read and how do we read Yes. His first rule of reading a book is that you have to understand what kind of a book you're reading. Is it yes. is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? And he mm -hmm. says you, you want to answer that question as quickly as you can because it shapes how you interpret what you're reading. Absolutely. But, but let me ask this. Um, so you're saying, OK, you might in 
you're going to interpret it and you're coming at this differently from say somebody in India or somebody that's older or younger or whatever. Does that mean that the Bible means something different to them than it does to you? Or do you think that the Bible has meaning in the text, that the, there is a meaning independent of the interpretation? If you read my book and the first six chapters here, you'll, you'll be able to see that, yes, I think there is meaning in the text that we can discern, that we uncover, even though we come from our different vantage points. Now, the way I describe that meaning is not sort of as a single point. So somehow there's one meaning of Matthew, and if I don't get it, you do get it. I'm wrong, you're right. Because Matthew has 28 chapters of a narrative that has many messages, and you and I can probably read it from different vantage points and arrive at at least a half dozen of the same messages quite well. Um, but it's also 28 chapters long and there's a lot there. And we can readily ask the question, is that part of Matthew's message with a particular interpretation? And I believe that we can answer yes or no to that question. In other words, we don't have to answer yes to everybody's reading of Matthew in every context. Um, I do find it better to be curious first about someone else's view rather than, oh, well, that can't be right. That can be right. I just recently was working on a lecture on Matthew that I, I recently gave on um, the idea of so where, where are riddles in Matthew? Where does Jesus tell riddles in Matthew? Because Jesus does tell some riddles in Matthew, I would suggest, and I've said so in my commentaries. And I was reading an interpretation of a, one particular passage in chapter 21, and I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And But I, I sat with it. And, and it really helped me to sit with it, even as I sifted through, do I think that's right or wrong? Or does that fit Matthew's intention or not? That's my guide for determining that. Does that fit what the author's doing in this whole story of Jesus? Um, but it helps me to sit with it more in a place of curiosity versus I'm going to be the arbitrator of right and wrong. I so, find so that's a little tiring personally to be that arbitrator all the time. But you have written three commentaries on Matthew. So I have. I have a lot of strong convictions on what Matthew's <laughs> up to. Absolutely. You can ask me and I can say, I know I think that. But I, I still want to learn. I just sat with a Matthean scholar as part of my, my trip to Canada where I spoke at Acadia Divinity College. I sat with a scholar of Matthew who had a different, has a, a lens that I have not encountered before, um, an Indigenous lens for reading Matthew. Um, and I, I was utterly fascinated and curious and wanting to engage ideas that were new to me. And I've studied Matthew for 20 years. So, okay, I, so I think that's okay and good, actually. Okay. So, but I just want to, I want to push you on this just a little bit more. I also uh, want to affirm and express my uh, moments of surprise when I'm with somebody from where Africa or India or wherever, and they read this passage and, and hear it differently. And I am sometimes immediately convicted that, oh, yes, you're right, and I'm wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. I never thought about that. And, and yeah. I have a friend who was uh, from a polygamous culture and mm. talking about the qualifications for an elder, the husband of one wife. And we got all these American definitions of that. And yeah. he's like, yeah. you just can't have two wives. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I've never read mm -hmm. it that way. Like, how did mm -hmm. I not read it that way? So I get that. But 
And this sort of drifts into some, I guess, postmodern theory or other yeah. things. Uh, but let's just take Matthew 28, 18. Let, let's, uh, as opposed to Matthew, where I certainly uh, get and affirm and understand, yeah, if I read Matthew um, and you read Matthew uh, at different times, I'm going to get different things out of Matthew the next time I read it. And I'm certainly going to likely get different applications or different connections mm -hmm. with that. But do you think that when Matthew was writing, Matthew 28, he's quoting Jesus in 18 through mm -hmm. the Great Commission, mm -hmm. that that meant something and that the task of Bible study, properly, succinctly mm -hmm. stated, is to figure out what the original author meant uh, to the original reader. That that's at least the launching point, and 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 feel yeah. free to disagree. But I'm just, I don't want to disagree with that. <laughs> okay. No, I I think uh, the the uh, the author's intention in that first setting to that first audience is the starting point. Uh, it, it it grounds us in the the idea that the text is in a particular historical context, and we need to hear it there. It grounds us in the idea that. The genre of that text, what Matthew was wanting to write, um, a biography of Jesus, uh, you know, the, it, how we think of the genre of Matthew, that's a sort of a debated question, but I think at least a biography, but very informed by the Jewish scriptures. So a theological biography of Jesus to say, ah, let me tell you how these strands all connect. And then the idea that we read it as a whole. So Matthew 28, 18, we need to hear it in the context of the rest of the book. Jesus' all authority is coming after the resurrection and has already been, of course, alluded to in his authority to heal and to do other kinds of activities. Um, and yet he has been under the authority of God, chapter 20, 23, you know, this is uh, God decides sort of who is on right and left hand sides. James and John don't get to. And Jesus doesn't even go right. with that. So we have to hear that authority theme in the context of the whole. That helps us to interpret it well in 2818. So, so all of those things. So literary context, historical setting and genre. Those are kind of the foundational pieces for me that come out in the last half of the book. Right. Yep. Um, that I think everyone should hang on to. Because I don't think they're rocket science. It's how we do, it's how we read well in our present context. Why not bring those good reading values to the Bible? That's so, pretty much what I teach. <laughs> so Okay, so so then let me come at this and push from the other side. Okay. Lot, I'm sure you have had lots of, you have been in lots of settings where people have asked the question, what does this text mean to you? Like, okay, let's read this. What does it mean to you? Oh, isn't that fascinating? Because it means something very different to me. And if we're saying, if you're, I mean, what I say, and I, yeah. I just heard you basically affirm, yep. I said, look, the first job in Bible study is to figure out what the original writer wanted the original reader to interpret, to understand. So you're climbing back, you're looking at the words, you're trying to figure out the genre, you're thinking mm -hmm. the historical context, the theological context. Okay, so what would that like what did that mean to them when they heard it? Now, the application of that might be very different for them than it is for us in 2000 years later, whatever. Mm -hmm. So if that is the starting point, we're trying to get to the original meaning. What do you say when somebody says, well, it doesn't mean that to me? 
and it depends on who's saying that in what context. I mean, okay, you know, I, it, do, I, is that somebody in my class who's said, I'm going to take a class from Janine? And, and so I'm going to, in one sense, sit under her teaching. I don't like yeah. that power differential piece, but um, that is what they're coming for, right? So then I would, I would want to press, um, press at their hermeneutic. In other words, so how do you get to that uh, thinking about how meaning comes out of the text? You know, that we are each dropped from by the Holy Spirit, different meanings. You know, so tell me about your hermeneutic. I, and I want to press that student to do that. If I have a Bible study and I'm one of the members of that group and somebody says that, you know, I can give passes to people because I don't know them well enough to say, hey, I think you have a really weird hermeneutic or something. like. I mean, right. I, I don't I don't talk like that. So um, I but I would want to I would want to probably ask some follow up questions to see to see, do they have kind of a mooring somewhere that ties them to something that we can all point to or draw from? You know what I mean? A common point, like you're saying, the, the original communication, that moment, the time of original communication between Matthew and, and Matthew's audience, does that mean something? Does that have value to them? I would want to explore that with them because I'd want to find some common ground. But I think that is the mooring that we need to use as we think about what what does the text mean today? How do we apply it? I use the language of contextualization. My final two chapters are on that topic. Yep. And I try to affirm that, yes, when the, the messages of Matthew go into a new context that wasn't the first context, then we have to think about that shift of context. It doesn't mean the messages go away or that they morph so I can't recognize them anymore. Um, but the theme of... Um, the mercy of Jesus or the compassion of Jesus in Matthew could land differently with different people. I don't think the theme ever goes away. And the intention of the author that Matthew wants to pray Jesus in lots of different ways, but as, as one way as merciful healer, that doesn't go away because I live in a different context than you. So I want to say there's something stable here right. that we can adjudicate different translations or different interpretations by and yet, uh, God can speak through scripture in ways that I don't anticipate. So why, we, why would God not be able to do that, right? So, yes, let me ask, though, there is a, um, you have written a book arguing uh, a hermeneutic and developing a, a particular mm -hmm approach uh to interpreting the bible and entering into this communication process so what are, what are the what do you what do you say to the person who signed up for your classes says, okay so i have been reading the bible i guess i've been interpreting it through my own lens i don't really know what that means or i'm a little bit nervous about this is mm -hmm. going to be more esoteric and heady than mm -hmm. i think it should be but mm -hmm. What are the starting rules or what's the first few steps or what's Bible study 101 in that you would want me to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I go back to those three values which inform the practice of reading with the genre in mind, determining what it is I'm reading, what is so Matthew is. Just define genre because yes. I I am aware that you know, as a guy that took all hard sciences, I got to grad school, uh, and the first time I saw a genre, I did not pronounce it correctly. So um, my dad always called it genre, just to make me 
Go, not Dr. crazy, Lamar, but to, yes. to tell a joke. You could, you could give it a hard G and make it even sound worse. So yeah. yes, you read the news. <laughs> so we're just talking about literary styles. Yes. You read the front page of the paper differently than the comics, differently than the ads, differently than uh, the the phone. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's the kind of writing that we're encountering as we enter a text. Um, so narrative, biblical narrative. Um, also, um, you can look at narratives like like parables that um, most people don't believe are sort of things that happen, but Jesus told the story to get the point across, right? So you, you have different kinds of narratives. We also have letter, um, epistle, letter, New Testament letters. We have poetry throughout much of scripture. So narrative and poetry are kind of huge categories. Uh, so just knowing that when I enter a text that's poetic, like the Psalms, that that's written differently and for different purposes. It doesn't mean it's it's harder to read than letter, um, but it is the case that Old Testament poetry or Hebrew poetry will not have the same kinds of poetic features necessarily as Western poetry. So we just have to get to know those kinds of writings. And there are great books that help you do that, like How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Great little introductions to each of the major genres of the Bible. The, the law, law in the Old Testament is a particular genre. So read their chapter as you're going to study Leviticus, because I know lots of people jump into Leviticus. Right. That's the first lots, thing they lots ever... Lots <laughs> of people are studying Leviticus, yes. My dean, though, who's an Old Testament professor, I mean, Levit he studied Deuteronomy, but Leviticus is, is one of his favorite books to teach. I love that. If somebody can love to teach and read Leviticus, they figured out how to read the genre well. There I've, you I've go. got to guess. So the first thing we've got to do is figure out what kind of book we're reading. Is this poetry absolutely. or parable or apocalyptic or what, what, what am I reading? Yes, absolutely. And we do those things intuitively and then we make adjustments as we go. So if you're reading poetry in the Old Testament and you've read a lot of poetry in your own context, you'll start to say, oh, well, this isn't like that. And that's good. You'll start to go, oh, then I'm going to adjust my expectations. We do this so intuitively. Um, and it's really good, again, to have a kind of a lay of the land. What is Hebrew poetry like? Actually, the lines are in balance parallelism often rather than rhyme, although sound right. is important. And it's, it's a fascinating topic. And it's one that's very accessible to people who want to just do a little bit more reading as they lead Bible studies. And I just think people who lead Bible studies or teach or preach, and, and those are people I'm training, people who teach or preach or will be leading, those people could use that extra seminary training or Bible study training. I, I was a um, student with an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship chapter, and then I was a leader, and then I was a staff worker. They did such amazing training lay training, you know, it wasn't like a seminary course, but it was so good. And it was reading books as holes and paying attention to genre, doing historical setting work. So we knew kind of where that text lived and breathed initially. And what years were you on staff with IV? Um, oh God, 1984 to 86 before I started seminary. So that was my, and then I realized I, I could use seminary because I want to do more of this or something like this. I didn't realize I was going to teach at a seminary when I went to seminary. That wasn't my goal and my plan. Who I think probably became president right after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Steve was a uh, oh, yeah. mentor. And, and um, oh, yes. I love InterVarsity. I love my days with InterVarsity. I love what they help students to do. I've spoken since then at different kinds of events. And they helped me 
get excited about reading not just little bits of the text, but holes. Now, can I tell you an old story? Because this is pre-computer, really. They would send us as students in 1982 and three uh, a manuscript in the mail, a manuscript of Habakkuk or I yep. had one of Philippians and Acts. And then we, I, I write still write all over texts like that. I print out a copy, but now I can do it with my computer, right? Just print out whatever translation I want, whatever. They would send it in the mail and then we do these careful book studies. And that was revolutionary because I understood that the Bible speaks in its littlest parts, a verse at a time. And I trust God can do that. I have no problem believing that. But I, I now understand that biblical authors actually want us to read the whole thing. Philippians, four books or four chapters. Paul wants us to read the whole. You know, he would have wanted us to read the whole and not just one verse 19 or something right. like that. So that was just revolutionary. And that was not seminary training. I got to seminary and I realized, oh, that's what InterVarsity was helping me to do. And now at seminary, I can dive in more deeply to the historical contexts of books because there were, there were tools to do that there. I did the manuscript study on Habakkuk. I was not with InterVarsity, uh, but uh, yes, the manuscript wonderful. studies. And uh, oh, I love that. Was was one of their books that we did that study with. So because yeah. they had that whole multimedia presentation, we brought that to campus. That was Habakkuk then translated into today. It was just amazing. It was like cutting edge multimedia, but we called it <laughs> multimedia. <laughs> right. Right. I date myself. Sorry. So, so back to the the one hundred ones of Bible study interpretation. Mm -hmm. Number one, what kind of a what kind of literature am I reading? What yes. is the genre? What's the second thing you encourage people to do? Start reading the whole. Read from beginning to end, and if that's 66 chapters of Isaiah. I, I wouldn't suggest starting with Isaiah if that's the first, you know, but read from beginning to end. Read the book of Ruth, four chapters, Philippians, four chapters, beginning to end and read it a number of times and just get a feel for the whole. Okay. Because I think one of the, the ways the church and the academy have, have not been helpful for studying the Bible is we've sliced off little bits. Yep. But this is not the practice of the early church. Justin Martyr talks about how the Christians get together and they read um, the the apostles, which they mean the think of gospels and the prophets Old Testament for as long as they have time. I mean, they just start reading. Why would we not do that? But we thought, oh no, nice little eight verses. Chunk. That's that's kind of the measure of the text. And that's like, no, cross those boundaries and get reading. So I have my students read things in whole sittings, work with a whole book. Um, and that is actually so exciting to me to do that kind of work, because I can kind of manage eight verses and say, I know what this means. But 28 chapters, I have to kind of say, okay, this is bigger than me. God's communication through Matthew about who Jesus is better, better keep me a little breathless rather than, oh, I know how this goes, right? Yeah. Mastery, okay. mystery, those things are not identical. So I, I need I need steps three and four and five if you've okay. got. So well, I like to just give the three, which I mean, because if, if you start there, you're gonna really be in good shape. So genre, what are we reading? Read the whole and then read the whole as much as possible with the, the historical context of that time. We will, very, and I do this, we, we bring our own context in. So I'm reading Philippians. I'm thinking about a church where people have pews and there maybe are like 200 or 300 or 400 people. And that's just not, these are house churches, which hold right. maybe 35 to 50 people with a large house. 
Um, are there a couple of house churches in the Church of Philadelphia? We have to start to use our historical imagination helped by people who have done excavation of house churches, who have talked about ancient houses, who have um, thought through how the New Testament talks about the way the church met and where, and, and bring some of that to bear to say, okay, I want to imagine something different than my context. So that's part of just getting to be good at understanding a little bit of the, the history of the of the text. And that's probably the hardest material to access, though some of the great tools that are coming out now, there's something called a Bible background commentary that gives you, so go to Philippians and say, I want to look at Philippians 3, and I want to know what relevant historical information should I know. It gives it to you in kind of chunks, not verse by verse, but like 3, 1 through 11. Here's what you should know historically to help you read the text. Bible background commentaries are these wonderful tools that get you started in that direction. And that's relatively, I think now it's about 20 years old to have a Bible background commentary, but um, really good tools. So that's what I got when I got to seminary. I got more history and I found that was just illuminating. It didn't sort of, one of the things I discovered was understanding the historical context of say 1 Corinthians didn't then lock his 1 Corinthians in the past. It made it pop into my current right. context. I'm like, oh, if I understand this is about meat offered to idols and what that looks like. And Paul's really concerned about the potential of idolatry happening for the, for the Corinthians. Chapter 10 is like, wow, well, that's serious stuff. And for me, that means, and I have to do some sort of translation because I don't have an idol temple nearby where food right. is being offered to. But it suddenly became more relevant to me than ever before when I was just taking in its little bits and didn't understand the context. So I think there's say? something lively there. <clears throat> What do you say to somebody who um, sort of comes at this from a different vantage point? So I, I, I mentioned initially somebody who's a little bit um, put off by, oh, you've got a, you write books on this, you got a PhD in this, you teach the seminary. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't like that. That's mm -hmm. making it too hard. But there's other people that say, oh, I could never, I, I, you know, I read the passage, but then when you taught on it, you saw so much more than I saw. I'd never see that. I don't know the Greek. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't read uh, Martin Luther, or John, C.S. Lewis. So I just don't know these things. So mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not able to do Bible study. I leave that to the professionals. Yeah. And they're, two poles of a, you know, whole spectrum of ways right, to look at it. Right. Yep. And you're giving me the two. And I want to say to the people who feel like the text isn't theirs to access, no good English reading, interpreting of the Bible. It's better than all the bad Greek exegesis you could, or, you know, interpretation you could dream up. I mean, so people can do a really good job, even from the English text, um, not even just it, we have good translations. Start there, and you do. You can do a great job listening really carefully. I mean, some of my best students of interpretation have not taken the Greek or Hebrew, but they're really good at reading, listening slowly, carefully, thoughtfully with that context. So I want to really encourage that person first to tell you the truth, because that's we. As leaders, I tell my I tell my students, you may never, this is the one thing I tell them they cannot do. I wag my finger and say, you may never put the Bible at a distance from the people you are serving. Mm -hmm. You may not say, but in the Greek it says. 
You can tell them something about the Greek, but you may not say, but in the Greek it says, because now they can't act. Now they need you. Now they just simply need you. Um, so I, I, the, love, I, I love that. Let me play, let me just play devil's advocate yeah. for just a little bit. So when I, when I, I was a college pastor, yeah. um, so similar to being an university staff person, we did a, and it was, it was led by university staff. We did something mm -hmm. called the Bible study roadshow. And mm -hmm. it was a weekend in which we trained people to do inductive OIA mm -hmm. Bible study. Yeah. And, you know, it was Friday night, all day Saturday. And, um, and my takeaway from this, I mean, I, we did it, I don't know, five or six years, is that I had made Bible study, I had talked about their ability to lead a Bible study mm. as if it was going to be easier than it was. Mm. And so we could walk them through a passage we did mary and martha uh mm -hmm. so we had them you know friday all they're doing is observation 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 yeah. we're introducing bible dictionaries and we're going through the yeah. business as soon as we got out of that passage and we gave them their own passage people are going left and right in every direction and i just yeah. remember going oh my goodness i can't i can't turn these people loose leading a small group mm -hmm. and i realized at that point, I'd been a Christian for eight years or so, yeah. and I had absorbed a lot. And yeah. I'd been to seminary, I'd absorbed a lot. So, yes, you want to say, you can do this. You yeah. can do this, and there's resources and the Bible commentary and good English translations. Is there any, however... Uh, there is a faith once proclaimed. There is the mm -hmm. Apostles' Creed. You got to stay within the boundaries here. And here's how yep. you understand that. Is that how do you how yep. do you safeguard that? Well, in talking then to the person who has, you know, uh, there's a bit of an anti-intellectual. I mean, should there really be experts in biblical interpretation? That sounds a little bit elitist, right? What about the priesthood of all believers? So to to that person. Uh, or those that group, I might, you know, I would want to say, you pick up your English Bible, what's already happened that experts have done so that you have that Bible. So translation has happened because nobody reads Koine Greek anymore and nobody reads biblical Hebrew. Um, you know, Greek and Hebrew are living languages, but not in the forms we see there. Um, so so somebody had to learn that. And that's going to have, have to happen at a, usually a master's level. It can happen at an undergrad level too, those languages. But facility with those languages takes a lifetime. Um, I'm on the NIV translation team. I need to have both Hebrew and Greek to do that. My Greek is much better than my Hebrew. I'm really willing to admit that half the team are Hebrew scholars. So that's really good. So when it gets to the fine point grammatical, we've got to figure out if this should go this way or that way in translation. I'm like, I really need to listen well to my Hebrew colleagues. But then they kind of get a little quieter when we move to the New Testament, to right. the Greek. So, the way, so do you know, Walt Liefeld, were you, did you overlap with, with Dr. Liefeld when he was on the team? I, I didn't, although I, I've used his work. I used his little Acts, interpreting Acts book, loved it, loved it, loved it. So I've worked, I mean, I love his work and, and he admire him. He was the pastor him. here before. Oh, wonderful. Before. So for five years, I, I did not follow him, but. Uh, we had, oh, I loved I, his work when I came, 
I asked him to come back to the church, which he did for the next okay. 10 years. He's a, such a sweet, ironic. Yes, I could imagine person. that. Oh, yes. Very oh, wonderful work. So, so I'm sorry, yeah, I came on in 2010. So um, I've known, you know, so I've not a lot of the um, the folks who started the pro project way back the NIV in the 1960s and 70s were on the committee through the kind of early 2000s. So I was kind of part of a shifting generation as just people went to be with the Lord. So, well, so, so let's talk about translation where you mentioned translation and you're on a translation committee. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're going to say that the NIV is the best translation. You're oh, you don't know that. what I'm going to say. You have to ask me the question. I think okay, I'm just going well, to close my drapes just a little bit. Hang on. The yeah. sun is coming out. It snowed in Minnesota. And now the sun is coming oh. out. I don't want it to look, I'm already sort of washed out enough. So I don't need to have. Well, it's my halo. In Minnesota. Okay. It's, yeah, I um, know. I was surprised when I woke up this morning. Well, so what, Talk about translation work yeah. for just a second. How important is it, or how could I have confidence? Yeah. I, I heard recently there's all these translations, good grief. There's translations of translations of translations. We don't even know that we got the right stuff anymore. So here's what I say about that. English if you are an English reader, you have multiple excellent translations. And because we have so many, we like to say, well, this is wonderful and this is awful. And it's just not the case. Every translation has strengths and weaknesses. We, we are just spoiled rotten in the English world. And part of it is financially, English translations make money. Right. I'm sorry. It is, it is, it's a business. And I, I don't translate on the translation team because it's a business. I mean, I, I worked for a nonprofit, the Biblical or the International Bible Society, commissions the Bible Committee on Bible Translation that superintends the NIV. And we meet every year. It's been a standing committee since... It started back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and I don't do it because it's going to make money for somebody right. like Zondervan in the end. It's because it's important work. Um, I did. But, I'm, I'm writing a book and I, I'm, mm. I took up this translation question and I I was wondering, maybe you've just given me permission. Like, why are there so many translations? And I wanted to say, honestly, <laughs> because they make money uh yeah but and, there's and more to it than that it is and 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 i love working so i'm a contractor you know hired by biblica to do this work as part of this 15 person team and that the money that they make fuels translation across the world in major right. languages like right. 200,000 people or more so chinese arabic swedish they're doing translations and revisions of translations across the world and some of that is few funded by NIV, you know, profits. So that right. that feels good and productive. So that's where I kind of keep my focus. And as we think about translations, um, there aren't there's no perfect translation. And the NIV is sometimes my favorite. I mean, I use it generally, but I, I love using other translations because there isn't a bad translation out there that's done, been done by a committee. I mean, like a translation, truly. I'm not talking about paraphrases and I don't mind people using paraphrases right. for the purpose of kind of loosening up or thinking about a particular topic that scripture talks about. But um, translations done by committees, that's the safeguard to have them done by one fallible person is not a great idea, but 15 people who are really committed to the accuracy of translation, I don't. I've never met a translator who wasn't 
committed to accuracy. Right. It's just not in their bones or wiring. I'm going to do something loose and fast with the text. That's not what we pour over every summer. Right. My right. goodness. Um, There's a but I like the NIV. NIV is good. Yes. Yeah, I know there is. And part of it is we've had some weird conversations over the last 30 years about Bible translation in the English speaking world. And and part of it is um, we've had a really amazing translation that happened, you know, 500 years ago, King James, that has kept its, left its mark right. all along the, the way. the language. Yes, I, yes. I actually, when I was saying there's a fear of that, I, I meant the opposite fear. The translators are like, the last thing I want to do is get this wrong. Uh, I, I want to be sure that I am, that it's, that it's fair. Yeah. So I, I want to. Uh, I, I want to do two things before we pivot here. One, I, just because I, I mentioned this idea of a translation of a translation of a translation, that that's not what happens, right? It, I, the first thing to do is to say, look, no, everybody's going back to the Greek text. Nobody's translating a translation in a translation because that would perhaps water down the meaning. But we're right, going that back. would be that would sort of move it further away from but we always ask the and so we have proposals that come to us each summer and primarily by the team itself but we take outside proposals we always have in whatever case the hebrew or the greek of the verse or maybe multiple verses depending on size of text and then we have the current niv and then the proposal and then a rationale so we're always looking at the original language and saying does this fit right the original text. And of course, we're thinking about the author of the original text and what they were intending. We hear that by what they've done elsewhere in the book. We're, you know, we're trying to really do good exit. It's like being in a really deep Bible study to be in this yeah. translation team. It really is because sometimes like, wow, I we've been, been in Jeremiah a few years. We finally finished Jeremiah proposals. There are a lot of them um, for reasons I don't need to go into. But anyway, um, I know Jeremiah so much better than I ever knew before. You know, it yeah. is amazing process. And um, uh, yes. Walt spoke very highly of it and enjoyed it and was often yeah. by those times. I, and I do think it's, it's, I think people need to hear, look, language changes, language modifies. And yeah. so there's, there's ongoing work to make sure that, yeah. that, that the original text is being yeah. communicated to you in a way that that you yeah. can grasp and um, we do learn new things and there are new discoveries and those things make a difference um i'm teaching a, a bible translation course with my colleague mark strauss who's also on the niv translation team in january for anybody it's through our seminary for everyone program at bethel anybody can sign up for it we're gonna talk about the history of bible translation bible um, translation um uh, theories, you know, practices and theories. We're going to talk about um, recent projects across a whole range of um, across the world in terms of current translation projects. Anyway, so if anyone's interested, we're going to teach a class on it. And it's meant to be just for the average everybody person. Okay. <laughs> so. so let me ask, um, I, I want to move us a little bit uh, afield here, but I've got a mm -hmm. couple other Bible study interpretation yeah. questions. Do you do you affirm? I'm not trying to I'm not trying to catch you. Mm -hmm. Sounds like I'm trying to set you up or something. But uh, talk about the perspicuity of Scripture. So you mm -hmm. are a Bible translator. You're a New Testament professor. Yeah. You're writing commentaries. You're trying to tease out the meaning. We're talking about people not getting the meaning or not even understanding they're interpreting it. So explain this doctrine of 
perspicuity and and what the obviously not the casual person on the street, but what the person yeah. who's reading just a little bit more uh, is going to come across when they see this work. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of the affirmation, the Reformation affirmation of the perspicuity, I can't even say it, you say it Perspicuity. Perspicuity, I don't use the term a lot, clearly, Um, is that the central message of the Bible is clear to those who encounter the text, read it, hear it, you know, the original people heard it, they may never read it, they might not have been readers. Um, that doesn't stop the messages from the message from coming through clearly. The message of what God and Christ has done for humanity, um, that's clear. That's my understanding of it, and I fully affirm that that is true. And that much of Scripture is is not hard to understand, um, especially if we're trying to you know we're reading in larger. I mean, wow. you can all pull a verse out of context. It's really yeah. easy to do. You could take my book and you can say, I'm, I picked something out from chapter six. Here's a line. Yeah. And then you could tell, this is what Janine says. And people would go, well, that sounds wonky. Well, you didn't read it in context. Come on. You know, we can all do that. We pull stuff out of context way too much in our own cultural context. Let's not do that with the Bible. Let's read the well, Bible. That's, that's, that, that's my segue to the next point. So I, I've been a pastor doing something like this for 35 mm-hmm. years. My experience, generally speaking, is that people know less and less mm. about the Bible every year, and I have to, I have to lower the bar. So I'm just, I'm, I'm writing this book. It's, it was going to just be a revision of a book I'd written 20 years ago, and I read it, and I said, oh yeah, no, I can't do this. Hmm. This just makes so many more assumptions. It, it's too thick. It's too. It's too, mm-hmm. people don't read sentences that have this many words in them very yeah. happily anymore. I need more. You know all of this. Yeah. And when I was when I started as a college pastor, I was just letting I was letting sophomores and juniors, seniors in in college lead Bible studies. Yeah, just lead a Bible study. I'm going to train you how to lead a Bible study. You go lead a Bible mm-hmm. study. By the time I left eight years later, it's like. Here's the study. Here's the answers. <laughs> don't mm. don't give any other answers, right? And I will walk you through. We meet every week and walk mm-hmm. them through the passage, but then we tell them what the passage meant and we help them to craft the questions because mm. we were just seeing less yeah. capability. So, yeah. so I, I I I feel that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of our current challenges? in culture, the polarization, the argumentation, the, the, just the dramatic different understandings of the world we're living in. Mm -hmm. Is all of this contributing to our Bible study problems? I mean, I would argue our Bible study or lack of Bible study is contributing to those problems, but do you think, are you seeing it harder to teach people communication theory and the laws of hermeneutics and good interpretation? Um, Is it harder? I I do think the chance that people can miss here, even what I'm saying in class, um, because, because it feels like the, the um, stances are hardening and kind of, you know, the places people are coming from are so very, uh, you know, people, some, some folks want to really identify that this is where I come from, you know what I mean? And it, it and it can exclude other ways of seeing things and, and seeing things. And in a master's level program, I mean, we're not trying, we're not fundamentally trying to teach people 
what to think in, in the narrowest details, but how to think. Now, we certainly are teaching in sort of an, an orthodox Christian framework, of course. I mean, we are we're committed to a high view of scripture. I mean, so they're going to get all sorts of themes that are about what you should think. But we're we're trying to frame their experience so that they're reading other voices and learning to read all voices reflectively and critically and thinking about those. And I don't think those kinds of skills and patterns are very common in our cultural context. We want to read in our echo chamber. We talk, you know, we hear this all the time. You know, I want to hear the people who agree with me, right? Um, we got to figure out how to help people think carefully enough and reflectively enough so that they can listen to people who they don't agree with. And in your own church, there are people that don't agree with each other. You know, let's not, I mean, of course they don't agree on everything in the Bible or in life. And, but is that, is that a, a barrier to Christian fellowship? Oh, I hope not. Um, one of my favorite stories about scriptures communication back in the like 2008 or nine, I was requiring it for a class and a children and family ministry student who's children's pastor at the time she was taking this course, first course in seminary. She was reading scriptures communication at a coffee shop. Somebody from her congregation came in, somebody she ministers to their child. You know, they're part of the mix. They know her. They were talking and she said she had just been reading the communication theory part. Okay. So the heady stuff of chapters one through six somewhere. And she said, because I'd been reading that, I listened to this person better than I think I would have if I hadn't, but I thought, okay, I'm going to put into action some of the, I was floored. I was like, this was completely unintended effect of the book. And I love it. I love that. It's helped me to think more about how do I communicate? There's so much implicit that goes on in communication. And I think sometimes our, to listen for the implicit can be really a helpful way to connect with a person we're not agreeing with. So not just hearing explicit stuff but what what's what's the sense of what's not being communicated or implicitly being communicated that I can tap into I feel like there could be a common ground here even though nothing we're saying on the surface is common but what about something here is there a way I can tap into a common value or a quest I have a question about what they value that gets communication is about all of that stuff Right. And it doesn't make it esoteric. It, it's it's the way we do it. We're really good at communicating most of the time. It's not like it's hard to communicate, to say what we think some days, but when it's, when it's, it, it, communication works so much of the time so wonderfully. That's why I think it's such a great model for understanding the Bible, because it's not like now the Bible becomes unexplainable. It's that it's communication. I can understand it. Paul wanted so deeply to communicate with the right. Philippians, and I get to listen in on that conversation, and then I get to say, would Paul want me to do today? What would Paul want us to do today? Those are communicative questions. And I think they're not rocket science, but they do take thought. They do take thought and study. And for me, it's a joy to do that study. I love to do my next commentaries on first Peter. I just can't wait to dive in even deeper to that letter. I've been in the gospels for a while now. I'll do some letters for a while, you know, in terms of my kind of deep scholarly work. Right. But that deep scholarly work is supposed to come out in ways that other people can understand. My Philippians commentary that just came out this year in the Tyndale series, the first commentary I ever bought was the Tyndale New Testament commentary on Philippians by Ralph Martin okay. for university I, I stuff. I that book, yeah. And, and you that was my contributed to that. I just got to, and not to replace his, but to say, here's another yeah. generation of it. And, and it's meant to be really accessible. And I worked hard to make it so. 
Um, and yeah, there are footnotes because I can't quite do things without footnotes, whatever. But um, uh, I, I just love that work and then sharing that work and finding, seeing that some people find it valuable it is just well, where I want to be. God bless you for the work you're doing. I want to hold this up for those scriptures, communication, introducing biblical hermeneutics. I would, um, we're, we're out of time, but Great to uh, talk with you. I, there's, there's more to talk about when it comes to communication and Bible study. I, I thought it was, I found it very interesting that you got this uh, Lewis Carroll quote, Humpty Dumpty talking about words. Cause I, that's one of the ones that I had in that when I was teaching the Bible study roadshow that yeah. whole, I thought I, I hadn't read it in 20 years. And now when I read yeah. it, uh, preparing for so, this, I was like, Oh my goodness, was Lewis Carroll predicting post-modernity or was he yeah. modern all the way back then? We can make words make and mean anything we want, unless we well, want to communicate with people. Then unless we, can actually we use want them. to actually communicate. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well so you're working on, uh, I was going to ask you about your next okay. project. And you yeah. said that's going to be a commentary on First Peter. Yeah, I have a commentary in the New International Commentary series um, on First Peter that's due in a few years. I also am writing a book. Um, Zondervan has a biblical themes book, or yep. uh, and I'm doing the First Peter volume on that. So I'm thinking about the themes of First Peter, which will, of course, come into my commentary work. But I'm doing those sort of concurrently. Um, I also have a little book I'm going to be doing with Baker with one of my colleagues called Jesus Now Playing, which was our course that we taught on Jesus films last oh, okay. January. And we've put it into a book proposal um, to talk about Jesus films and how they uh, fit the Gospels or don't and how they actually mirror some practices of the early church after the Gospels are written, second, third centuries, harmonization. Um, so you when know, you kind say of, Jesus you're, you're, you're being relatively uh, literal in this sense that this this is this is not sort of um, uh, I, I'm recognizing Jesus as Jesus as opposed to the offices of Jesus in the Lord of the Rings being divided between Frodo and Gandalf and Aragorn. Well, we're looking uh, how, at particularly at films about Jesus. So all of the maybe 70 films that have been, I don't remember how many, right. there's a lot, and it's not 70, 50, um, over the last hundred years or so. And then saying, what about those portraits have resonance with hmm. early portraits of Jesus? Certainly the four gospels, that's that's where people go typically to create their picture. How 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 much do they fit okay. or not? And and what do they, where do they fill in gaps that are when, inevitably when in will the that book be out? Well, we're just starting to write it. So a couple of years at least. Oh, okay. So, um, but it, it's, okay. it's, it's a course we taught that we had so much fun. John Dunn and I had so much fun teaching it and students loved it. And we taught it for this seminary for everyone as well um, format. And it just got us going on. We should, we should write this. That would be fun. Okay. That would be a good, good. good book. So something to look forward to. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Brown, for your work past and present and future and um, so may much. our bible studies be uh draw us closer to christ so absolutely well thank you so much mike i appreciate being here with you and i hope you don't have to shovel hopefully the snow will come out I, and melt away the snow i think the sun is doing that work right now i okay, believe right. so in okay. faith i trust okay take care thank you bye-bye bye-bye